Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am really excited this week to be welcoming Jerry Sachs. Jerry, who grew up in Baltimore, ended up working for the Baltimore Orioles, first as a volunteer, then public relations director, then moved down to the Atlanta Braves as the public relations director for them, then worked for Coca-Cola USA as their first director of sports marketing, eventually moving back up to Baltimore in 1970 as the Baltimore Bullets vice president and general manager. Jerry played a significant role in the planning of Capital Center and became the president of the Center Group, which is the operating entity that included the Washington Bullets, helped recruit the capitals to the region, and then center management and local ticket master. While he was with the Bullets, they went on to the NBA Finals four times and won the championship in 1978. Jerry has also been instrumental in so many different initiatives in the greater Washington, D.C. DMV region and helped found organizations, including the Washington Regional Alcohol Program. So he has been active in the community, looking for opportunities to give back and doing so, whether when he was the president of the center group or through his many years since. I really enjoyed this conversation because Jerry is one of those leaders who constantly looks at opportunities for business to do good, for the individual leaders to do good and give back to the community. And I learned so much from Jerry, and I'm sure you will too. I also love hearing from you. Keep your comments coming. Mahanadmahantavakoli.com. There's a microphone icon on partneringleadership.com. You can leave voice messages for me there. Don't forget to follow the podcast on your favorite platform of choice. That way you will be notified of new releases. Tuesdays with magnificent changemakers like Jerry from the greater Washington, D.C. DMV region. And then Thursdays with global thought leaders, primarily leadership book authors of books that I believe can be transformative to the way we lead our teams and our organizations for a greater impact. And those of you that enjoy these episodes on Apple, Leave a rating interview when you get a chance that will help more people find and benefit from the conversations. Now, here is my conversation with Jerry Sachs. Jerry Sachs, welcome to Partnering Leadership. I am thrilled to have you in this conversation with me. I'm honored. Jerry, you have had such a significant impact on this entire region through your active involvement over the years. You have been close friends with a dear friend and mentor of mine, Dave Rutstein, whom I adore. And Dave Rutstein's conversation is one of the top podcasts globally with people listening to his leadership. And your son, Gene, is a dear friend and we went through Leadership Greater Washington. So there are so many connections and associations with you But most especially in this conversation, I want to focus on you, Jerry, and your leadership journey. You were born and grew up in Baltimore. What was the Baltimore you were born in and grew up in like? It was a very, very different era, I think the 30s and 40s and 50s. We grew up in Northwest Baltimore. It was primarily a very white Jewish area at the time. It was very simple, played ball in the streets, had a basket on my uh, garage door, and kids came over and we played every afternoon and evening until dark. And it was a beautiful time, and I was so fortunate to have lived in that era. And in that time period, Jerry, David Rubenstein was also mentioning the city to a great extent was segregated, what he was talking about was he said it was almost like living in a Jewish ghetto in Baltimore. It was certainly in the early days. I only knew Jewish kids until I went to a high school in Baltimore called Baltimore City College. 
the third oldest public high school in the United States. It was all male, all white, but it attracted boys from all over the city. So it was a melting pot. There's a, a white, this is before brown, but it exposed me to just a wonderful diversity of kids my age, but from different backgrounds. And many of these boys then may now remain my friends. You were a movie fan and uh, John Wayne movies back then had an impact on you. So what was the impact of movies? And besides that, what did you want to do when you grew up? I saw John Wayne perform in the sales of Iwo Jima. And at that point, I decided no matter what else I did in life, I wanted to become a United States Marine. But they were the toughest and the best. And it was always a desire of mine to have the experience of joining the Marine Corps. And fortunately, I did. Then why did you choose to go to Dartmouth College? I chose Dartmouth because it was all male. And that was my experience going through high school. It had a great reputation. It was up in the upper wilds of New Hampshire, a very scenic and bucolic surrounding. It had a wonderful reputation and it caught my eye. I was fortunate enough to be accepted. When you joined the Marine Corps, that was not the traditional path most people were taking. I was part of a program in the Marine Corps called the Platoon Leaders class. And that entailed going to Quantico, Virginia for two six-week periods. You came back to school and did not take any classes or courses, which appealed to me. I didn't want to interrupt my college experience. And after graduating, you were commissioned as a second lieutenant. I went for six weeks at Quantico, came back to school, and did not have a really good beginning of my junior year at Dartmouth. I felt lost, felt that I needed to take time off. So I left Dartmouth and the Marine Corps then said, come on aboard. You're not going to be a commissioned officer, but you'll be a regular infantryman. And so I went into the Marine Corps for two years and came back, went to Dartmouth for a half a year and then went on to finish my undergraduate career at Case Western Reserve. How did that Marine Corps experience, Jerry, shape you and the kind of person that and the leader you became? I'm not sure what kind of leader I became, but it was the experience of success, of doing what was necessary to be a proud Marine and the six weeks I spent at Quantico, which was boot camp, was a hell of an experience when first day I got there, I thought, did I really leave the warmth of my house to join this? And they marched me around in the barracks and they gave me right face, left face, forward march, which I did. And I uh, was marching in the barracks and got up to a wall and the drill instructor said, hey, you stop. I didn't tell you to halt. You're a Marine. You either go through the wall or over the wall. And then I knew that I was in for a wonderful experience. And to be able to graduate and to get through that six weeks was really a physical and emotional accomplishment. And you have been through a lot of walls and over a lot of walls. And all through it, Jerry, with the love of your life, Joyce, you married back in 1958. How did you meet Joyce? I was in the Marine Corps. My last assignment was to recruit potential Marine Corps officers at colleges and universities throughout Illinois and Southern Wisconsin. My former roommate at Dartmouth said, if you ever get up to Wisconsin, there's a girl I know from Cleveland that is cute. And let me give you her name. And if you're up there, look her up. And I did. And we've been looking at each other. We just celebrated our 63rd wedding anniversary yesterday. That's wonderful because having that kind of support is really important in the happiness in life. And I know Jean and Barbara have also been prides and joys of your life through the years too. 
Oh, of course they are. And the jobs that I've had required me to be away from home a good bit. And if it weren't for Joyce and her dedication to our home and our children, things would not be the way they are today. She's the one who deserves the credit for making our family the wonderful group that we are today. So, Jerry, then what brought you back to the Baltimore area and Baltimore Orioles? I was a Baltimore Colt fan. I was so engrossed with the Baltimore Colts. Joyce and I actually attended the greatest game ever played in, I think it was 1958, when the Baltimore Colts beat the New York football giants at Yankee Stadium in an overtime game. And it was a television hit and just jettisoned the NFL into a great acclaim. In any event, so I wanted to work for the Colts. I had a friend who had worked for the Colts. And he said, well, write a letter to the owner of the Colts, which I did. Never got a response. He said, well, then write a letter to the general manager, which I did. And the general manager wrote back and said, hey, kid, that's very nice of you to want to help us work for a summer for free. But you got to get in line because there are a hundred or more guys ahead of you wanting to do the same thing. Well, my friend said to me, what about baseball? What about the Baltimore Warriors? Well, I had no idea about the Torch. I was a cross player. And baseball was something that I didn't embrace. But he said to me, that's not the issue. Would you want an opportunity to work for them for nothing? I said, yes, wrote a letter. Bottom line is we didn't call it the intern at that point. I just worked for nothing. Emptied the wastebasket, did mimeographing, ran errands. And I spent my last college summer working for the Orioles. Just so happened, I graduated in February. And they said to me, a position has opened up. Would you like to join us as a full-time employee? I said yes, and my sports career had begun. You did spend five years with the Orioles, and then what got you to move down to Atlanta Braves? The Braves moved from Milwaukee to Atlanta in, in 1965, from the 66 season, and they were looking for people with fill out their front office and they were looking for a PR marketing type person. And a good friend in Baltimore recommended me to John McHale, who was then the president of the organization. I joined them and spent uh, three years with them. Joyce came down and we built a home. We thought we would be in Atlanta forever. I spent three years with the Braves and then got an opportunity to work from the Coca-Cola company. And I was the first director of sports marketing for Coca-Cola. Had a great two-year, wonderful two-year experience before moving back to Baltimore to work for the Baltimore Bullets. And that's the incredible opportunity when you met someone that has been significant in this region. Abe Poland was the owner back then. Abe owned the T at that moment owned of the team in Baltimore, the Bullets. And he had bought the team from two other Washington fellows. And Abe over the years stayed in touch with me. And we had talked previously, just wasn't the right fit. He called, said, I think I have the right job for you. Come on up and let's talk. We talked and I said to Joyce, we're moving back to Baltimore. He said, <laughs> thank you very much. And, and we bought a hole with Baltimore and the Bullets in 1971 beat the New York Knicks in the seventh game of the Eastern Conference Championship in an extraordinary series with Wes Unsell blocking, basically blocking Bill Bradley's shot. We won the game and it was a heck of a way to start a career. But Abe, after that, felt that he wanted to explore moving the team. The arena in Baltimore was maxed out from a capacity perspective. They could only accommodate about 12,000. And the economics needed to be a little bit different. And he decided that he would move the team to Washington. He came over and talked to the folks at Montgomery County, Fairfax County, the District of Columbia, and said, I will bring you a tennis if you build an arena. I'll give you 40, 50 dates 
And then if you build an arena, you will have a solid tenant. None of them agreed to do that. Then went to uh, a canoeing firm and said, can a privately owned arena make it in today's economic world? And they said, yes, it can, but you need two tenants, two tenants. The other major tenant would be a hockey team. Abe had never seen a hockey game in his life. Had no idea what the business of hockey was all about. He called then the owner of the Los Angeles Lakers and the Kings, a guy by the name of Jack Ken Cook, and said, Jack, what is this all about? And he said, Abe, if you can get a franchise, you can make it. It's big time. He also went and talked to Ned Irish, then very prominent sports figure in Madison Square Garden who told us the same thing. It just so happened that two new franchises were being awarded for the 70, 73 or 74 season. And we scurried around and got our application in to the NHL on the last day that applications were being accepted. The NHL had already predetermined from what we understood where they're going to place two new franchises. We started to lobby the NHL to accept us. And we went on a full court press with all of the legislators in Washington who back home had NHL teams to convince them, to convince the ownership in the NHL that they needed to have a franchise in the nation's capital. Long story short, we got one of the franchises, Kansas City, again, a franchise, and that's how Washington Capitals and the Capitol Center was created. We could not have gone ahead with the design, construction, operation of the Capitol Center without the Washington Capitals franchise. It was that all the time. And it's all of that work was required in getting the capitals, which have become such a pillar in terms of sports teams in this region, to also make the capital center work. That by itself was a huge project, Jerry. Yes, it was. We had really a time constraint. The arena had to be ready for the 1974 hockey season. If it was not ready, our franchise was in jeopardy. First, we had to find a location. I went around the area with a helicopter ride, looked for vacant spaces. Finally found that there was a plot of land in Prince George's County that was residue from building the Washington Beltway. The, the federal government owned it. It was landlocked. They gave it to the state of Maryland. State of Maryland had no use for it. Fairly gave it to Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Park and Planning, Regional Park and Planning Organization had that. And there was a lease on that property for an arena. Not our lease, but there was a lease. There were three gentlemen from Montgomery County who had the foresight, actually, of saying, this isn't site for it. We'll go out and get teams and... The lease they had was quite preliminary and it wasn't final. But so they were going to go out and get an NBA franchise and a jump franchise. But we needed that property. They've had to make a deal with them to take over their lease and to include them in the ownership of the arena and teams. We got the land, but then we had to get a design and build the arena. And that was one unbelievable project. It was night and day, 24, 7, we're at it. And it was one of the most exciting periods of my life to be a part of that project. So, Jerry, the Capital Center had a lot of unique features and aspects to it. I remember having been to Capital Center and being really impressed by the facilities and all the different features. What went into putting all of that together? After we got the hockey franchise and we knew that it was a go, we were under extraordinary deadline to get the building designed and built. And it was just an incredible period of time with the George Hyman Construction Company being the contractor 
And we had an incredible structural engineer who was world class. You saw that you remember the dips in the roof. All of that was purposefully designed to carry a lighter roof. So while this was being designed and built and the design and construction were going on at the same time, we were staffing up for the arena. We were staffing up for the operation. And we took over used or unrented apartments in the Rittenhouse apartment, Abe's family owned on 16th Street. And we were hiring people to fill positions for a facility that was not yet built. And it was a very heady time. We hired all sorts of people, many of whom were young, right out of school, but all were enthusiastic about the process operating this brand new facility. None of us had experience operating an arena, but we went ahead. And the unusual features that we had in the arena were this tell screen that we had. We were the first arena or stadium in the country, in the world, actually, to have a scoreboard with television to show television replays and live performance. We created that out of whole cloth, basically. That was terribly unique. The other thing we designed and nobody had designed in the initial facility, arena or stadium, the special seating, we call it. We had sky suites, loges, portal boxes, all were actually designed into this new facility. Brand new, never had been done before. The other really unusual feature was that we designed our own ticketing system. Before this, there was not a full-blown computerized ticketing system where every seat in the house was available. Every The next best seat in the house was available to the next ticket purchaser. It was usually a combination of hard tickets, which obviously uh, were dispersed and you never knew what you were going to get. And there was some computerized ticketing with a company called Ticketr. We designed our own ticketing system for the person who stood up to the next person who had the opportunity of getting the next best seat. These were all brand new concepts. And we went to him and said, we want to try all this stuff. Are you up for it? And he said, go for it. And it was just a very heady time. And the other major thing, I had been in baseball and I had visited a lot of baseball parks, and a lot of arenas. And I was impressed with the lack of warmth and welcoming that the ushers and those in the arena really had. And I was determined that we were going to change this. And I actually went down to Orlando, to Disney World, where they had a program where they talked about guest satisfaction, guest treatment. And we brought back the system and we introduced it and we called it Setergism. And the philosophy was every night was opening night. So that our host, and we called everybody a host and host, since they weren't ushers, they knew that people coming into the arena, this was their first experience, perhaps, and they had to be treated like guests in their own home. And we tried to make sure that the welcoming that we provided our guests, our ticket holders, with that kind of experience, that they felt welcome. That was very important to me and very important to the men and women that we hire to carry out this procedure. I want to make note of the fact that the arena opened on December 2nd of 1973. The Bullets played Seattle and we had a sellout crowd. The next night we had the Allman Brothers <laughs> for ticket prices of $6.05. Oh, wow. <laughs> we had close to 10,000 people. The next night we had the Boo, ticket price six fifty. In all, we had 59 concerts the first 12 months of our operation. It was wonderful, exciting. We thought it was just an extraordinary opportunity, exciting time for us. It was wild. We had that every night. We had Disney on parade. We had ice capades. And we had Alice Cooper, the Jackson Five. We had an Ali Frazier live screen television fight. We did it all. We actually at one point created our own circus because we had a fallout with the Ringling Brothers. 
And we had to go create our own circus, which we played head to head with Ringling Brothers. We had Carl Walenda, Emmett Kelly Sr. We had the stars, few past stars of Ringling Brothers came to us and we played date for date against the Ringling Brothers. It was a heady time. We had a wonderful staff, very creative, very enthusiastic. And it was an experience of a lifetime for me. And also, I think, for the employees that we hired at that time. You successfully built that, hosted the Capitals, hosted the Bullets, and then the Bullets eventually went on to the NBA Finals four times with you and also won the championship in 1978, Jerry. That must have been a special moment for all the hard work that you had put into making the Capital Center reality and also on the bullets as an organization too. First, I'm part of a team. You can't just say me. But one interesting incident. The first year we opened the arena with the bullets was 1973. And we had a good team. But we didn't know how good the team was. And we didn't expect the team to make it to the finals of the NBA championship. So we had to schedule the arena and sometimes far in advance. We actually scheduled a rodeo at the time when the finals were to take place. Normally, the schedule for the NBA finals is two home games, two away games, back for one home game. And it just so happened that we couldn't play our second home game because we had a rodeo. Means <laughs> dirt, a lot of dirt. And dirt requires extensive removal. And we couldn't do it. So we lost the first game. We went out to San Francisco and we lost the second game. We were a hand in both games all the way until the very last quarter. It was our feeling had we been able to play the second game at home, we could probably have turned around this series. But fate was such that we couldn't end. So we lost in, in four games. But you're right. In 1978, we went all the way. I am so lucky because most of us who work in professional sports never have the opportunity to win a championship, let alone win. So just to have one world championship is just an incredible experience. One that we will always remember. I certainly I will. I have the ring to prove it. It must be a special experience, especially because you had also worked really hard along with the other folks in the organization to make it a reality. To be able to enjoy that win becomes really meaningful. But Jerry, you also had a chance to work very closely with a Poland who still to this day, many people say contributed so much to this region through both his philanthropy, but also his business foresight. When you think about his leadership and what that was like in terms of leadership with you and the rest of the organization, what are some takeaways from a Poland man? Abe was a true competitor. If things were going well, he wouldn't quit. He'd dig his heels in and try that much harder and look for ways to turn things around. But most importantly to me, Abe Poland gave more to this community than any one person, including himself, knows. I can tell you that there were people who came to him who needed help. And without batting an eye, he reached out, whether it was financially or even to help with construction. He was there for soul wedding people. He really gave back to the community. And he certainly was a model for me and all of us who work with him to understand how important we, we were blessed. We were blessed with success and being given that luxury we needed to show our appreciation and help others who weren't quite as fortunate. He was an incredible giver. And Jerry, you also have been an incredible giver, including creating RAP, Washington Regional Alcohol Program, 
and team techniques for effective alcohol management. What brought about those two organizations that you helped found? Well, Red is the Washington Regional Alcohol. I was driving to the arena one morning and I heard a editorial talking about drunk driving and how important it is to really discourage and cease that senseless tragedy. And I realized we were contributing. We were selling more beer in a concentrated period than probably any bar in town. We were selling in the biggest cups you could find. We were selling as often as we could in the arena. We were actually at one point selling beer to people as they left the arena. And I went to Abe and said, Abe, we need to do something about this. Will you give me the opportunity to explore this? I should add that particularly at hockey, selling a lot of alcohol created a very disruptive audience. We had some tough hombres who were drunk and they were driving a lot of parents and families away. These guys were, we were selling it at the first intermission. We sold it at the second intermission. Again, we sold as they were leaving. We were not at all socially conscious. With Abe's agreement, I talked to some people who were involved in the issue of driving and drinking. And we met at the Marriott on Pooks Hill and said, what do you think? Can we start something that is a regional program to deal with drunk driving? And we agreed that it was something we could do. And we started the program with the help of U.S. transportation, the people. They helped us fund this. We then went out in the community and got people to join our group. Very small group at the beginning. We actually hired a executive director and rap was formed. And at the meantime, in the arena, we started to be much more responsible in the way we served alcohol, much more. We made people give out their ID. So we served only those who were of age. We didn't go down and bend in the seats so that people could just pass beer along and you didn't know who you were selling to. They had it come up to a stand. We also stopped selling in hockey only between the first two periods. We did not sell between the second and third period. And we sure as hell stopped selling beer as people were leaving. So rap was really doing well. And the thought came to me is this is something that all sports should embrace. There were issues, particularly in the NHL, particularly in the NFL, also baseball, but all sports should, we felt, be more responsible and to help save lives first and foremost, but also to make sure that conduct in arenas, stadiums, ballparks were more gentle. And so I went to the leagues and asked them if they would embrace starting a program, which we call Techniques for Effective Alcohol Management Team, which is going on today. They train the people in ballparks, those who are vendors, as to how to handle selling the product. And people are trained. They have programs talking about the drug driving, driving with care and caution, uh, the designated driver. So all of this became a program across all of professional sports and even in some collegiate sports facilities as well. So it was something that really, because of Andy Ockerhausen, who was the general manager at WMA speech, basically, about the problems of alcoholism and, and drug driving. That caused rap and team to be formed. What a magnificent story, Jerry. First of all, Andy Ockershausen was also a dear friend and a great person that we lost a few months back. What a great story, because right now, a lot of leaders and organizations talk about the need for conscious capital, being more socially aware, being more aware that the only thing that matters shouldn't be just the finances. While finances are important, you do need to care about other things. This is a beautiful example of you driving in a car and reflecting on not just how can we increase revenues, 
but how can we be a good corporate citizen or be a good citizen of the community while we meet the needs of our fans and the community at large too? We did this at the risk of losing business. We lost sales. We lost sales because of this. And I must add, in addition to the members of the various sports league, we had the beer companies join this because they recognized that if things got out of hand, they would be severely penalized. So they realized that being good citizens and controlling the consumption was important. So it was an important decision that all of us made to do the right thing. It is great that you were able to get support. A lot of times the hardest step is that first step of the germination of idea and then getting others to come along. And as you said, it was done with the understanding that there would be an initial loss in revenues, but it was the right thing to do. Precisely. Not only saving lives, but to have a better atmosphere in uh, sports facilities where families, parents could feel comfortable in bringing their kids. So that perhaps enhanced revenue as well. And it's such a great example, again, because right now, Jerry, a lot of leaders keep talking about the fact that there is a need for caring about more of the stakeholders than just the shareholders, caring about the community at large rather than just revenues. The Business Roundtable a couple of years ago came out with a statement to that effect. Conscious capital movement is growing because of that. So you were a couple of decades ahead of all of these other leaders and organizations. And you've also given back through a lot of other involvements in the community also. What is the Chillum Youth Project all about that you've been so engaged in, both personally and your entire family? It's an interesting story. About 30 years ago, I was in my dentist's office. And sitting across from me was a Caucasian gentleman. And sitting on either side of him, were three or four very Latino-looking young kids, probably kindergarten age. And I just approached him and said, either you're married to a Latino woman or this is a very interesting story. The gentleman's name was Joe Emmerich, and he had created a program called the Chillum Youth Project, which operated in the Chillum area of Prince George's County, where there are a lot of new residents, many undocumented immigrants there, some who are really under the radar. These are kids who have nothing, both from food, clothing, education. And this man has decided to devote his life to these children and their families. After school, he ingratiated himself with the elementary schools and they realized that his program was a great addition to what they were able to do during school hours. He would teach them ethics, what was right and wrong. He'd get them to read. He helped them with their whole work. If they didn't have food on the table, he'd buy food for them. But he became a Latino conversationalist. He would represent them in the courts so that they could have some sort of knowledge and representation. As devoted his life to these families and to these children. Extraordinary man. Interestingly, In January, Joe came down with COVID-19. He has been in and out of two, three hospitals, two or three rehab facilities, and is still to this day in a rehab facility. He's no longer taking oxygen. He has a feeding tube in his stomach, which can be removed, we hope. But he himself has been in great need of help and chill youth project is on standby. He tries to recover. And there are a group of us who are trying to help Joe now, particularly some of the former students that he took as little ones. One who is an attorney, one who is an accountant, several who have become professionals. And we are gathered now, as we speak, we are gathered now to help Joe get well. It is heartbreaking to hear Joe's experience with COVID 
how energizing that he has spent a lifetime contributing back to the community. And one of the special things that this shows about you, Jerry, is a lot of us live life oblivious to the people and the experiences around us. When you are driving and you hear on WMAL the story about drinking and driving, you ask yourself, what can I do to make a difference? And while years later, we can look back and it all makes sense. There were a lot of sacrifices that had to be made, a lot of people to be convinced to make that a reality. And when you were sitting in the doctor's office and you noticed this gentleman with the three little kids, you engage in conversation and then you ask, what can I do to make a difference? And I think that is something very special about you, Jerry Sachs. So Jerry, you also at one point were involved in an organization called Hoop Dreams. What was that all about and how did you get involved? Hoop Dreams was a program started by Susie Kay, a teacher at H.D. Woodson High School, who saw the fact that many of her kids, if given the opportunity, could really go on and get a higher education and perhaps go on to a very fruitful and successful life. There was an article about Hope Dreams in the Washington Post. Sarah Orowitz was the author. So I read it. And then I wrote a letter to Susie because she was developing a three-on-three basketball tournament to raise money for this project. Susie was not one to turn down an offer. And she grabbed a hold of me and I became part of the directorship, if you will. And we said, she, Susie, who was a dynamo who was an extraordinary, devoted, loved kids and wanted to do the best she possibly could for them. She said, I think about a thousand young people to college. And I was fortunate to be a part of that. And unfortunately, when the recession hit, I think in the nineties or thereabout, we couldn't raise enough money in the program dissipated. But it was a very heady time seeing these young people who came from very difficult circumstances east of the river develop into potentially stars. And again, I was fortunate to be a part of that. I know you're very involved with Friends of NIH and you serve as a board member there. How did you get involved and why this one? I'm a long-term patient. They have saved my life. And I was totally unaware that there are patients who come to the NIH who don't have the resources to stay in their protocols, in their studies. They may have expenses back home, childcare, rent to pay, utilities, and they can't stay in their protocols long enough to test the whole new system. In addition to which, there are patients who come to the NIH and after their inpatient status, they become outpatients meaning they have to stay in the community, not in the hospital, in the NIH hospital, but in the community in order to take their outpatient treatment. In the early days, some of these patients had to sleep in their cars. They, they didn't have the resources to have a decent place to stay. And to their very credit, employees at the NIH recognized this need and they started the program of Friends of the Patients at the NIH. The NIH employees are no longer part of this program. They're just those of us on the outside who have heard about this, recognize the need, and we're engaged in trying to raise money. We have three apartments in Bethesda where patients can come to be treated as outpatients. And we're talking about if there is more need we're prepared, hopefully, to raise the funds necessary to do what we can to make sure every patient, the treatment is free. There's no charge to be treated at the age. Almost all of the treatment is on very avant-garde, very new experimental treatments. And some of the patients need help to stay in their studies. The statement, uh, who much is given, much is expected. And I've been given an awful lot at the NIH. I'm privileged to, be able to help others who need that help. 
And you serve as a beautiful example of what leadership is all about, the contributions to the people around you and to the community. But Jerry, if you were to reflect back and give advice, whether to a younger Jerry or to younger leaders, as they want to be as impactful as you've been in your personal journey, in your leadership journey, in your chance to contribute to the community, what advice would you give? When an opportunity presents itself, take doing something like rap, seeing chilling or friends is so rewarding. You are getting so much back, more than the contribution that you made. The, the results, when you see positive, when we're saving lives on the streets of, of Metropolitan Washington, mm-hmm. Joe Emmerich is saving these children who otherwise would fall through the cracks of humanity and also patient. It's a high that you get. You need to invest. You need to invest. You need to take that step. But at the right time in your life, don't miss the opportunity because it's more rewarding than it is in the fact that you're giving. It's rewarding to see the results. And I'm fortunate to have been able to do that. And you've done that along the way. There are people that have also shaped your thinking and contributed to you, Jerry. In addition, we talked about that some of them all throughout the conversation. Bob Hammerman also had a significant impact on your life. I'm an only child. I have no brothers, no sisters. And this guy adopted me as a younger brother. Two guys and myself were walking down Wabash Avenue in Baltimore, Maryland. We were 11 and 12 years old. And we said, let's have a boys club. Great idea. <laughs> we need an advisor. We need somebody's older. One guy said, oh, I know somebody. His name is Bob Arrowman. Let's go knock on his door. We did. He agreed to be our advisor. He was just graduated high school going into Johns Hopkins University. And we started a club called the Corsairs Boys Club, which later morphed into something called the Lancers Boys Club. And Bob was the advisor. And Bob adopted me as a younger brother and made me a part of Corsairs and the Lancers and shaped my life. He was the one who said to me, what do you want to do in life? He said, what about sports? He was the guy who tuned me in to talk to the Colts and then to the Orioles. I don't know where I'd be without it. And he also told me, what is right to do in life? What are the important things in life? And he shaped so many young men and then young women who ultimately joined the club. He really made a difference in our lives. You mentioned David Rubenstein. David was a Lancer and was shaped by being a part of that organization. And Kurt Schmoke, former mayor of Baltimore, was the Chrome Guard. He was one of the assistants at the CIA. His younger brother, Cookie, who was at the State Department. We've got a plethora of young men and women whose lives were shaped by these clubs and by Bob Haver as the advisor to the club. So without him, I don't know where the hell I'd be today. (laughs) I don't know where I'd be. I certainly wouldn't be here talking to you. We all need both good role models and also people that take us under their wings and give us the opportunities and guidance when needed. So in addition to that, Jerry, are there any leadership resources that you typically find yourself recommending to people as they want to become more impactful, better leaders? I don't really. I never studied the role. It just fell in my lap. But I had the benefit of Bob Arifin and the Corsairs and the Lancers being my basic tutors in this. Bob gave to everybody. He set the example. And so I studied at his feet and it's because of him that I am here uh, so fortunate, so very fortunate in life. I have a great wife, a great family, and I'm privileged to help others. I'm thankful. And it's because of you, Jerry Sachs, that so many great things have happened in this community. When you think about the change in perception with respect to drinking and driving, the way the sports behave and act, when you think about even the Chillum Youth Project and its impact, NIH, 
and the significance of the capital, so many different things that you have played a role in making a reality for our region. And you have helped impact so many people's lives, some that have met you and know Jerry Sachs and some that have not, but really appreciate the contributions that you have made and taking the time to share some of your leadership journey with me and the partnering leadership community. And one last thing, please understand. I, I am not the paragon of virtue. I've done some things that I regret in the course of my life. It hasn't been perfect. But I've really tried to atone and I've tried to set the proper path. But I am not an angel by any stretch of the imagination. But thank you for giving me the opportunity to share what few things that, I, that I've done. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, and that's a relevant point, Jerry. Leaders, when they are set as paragons of virtue, those are images that are unattainable and not true to reality. In reality, we are all flawed human beings. And if we recognize and, as you say, atone for them and try to become better people, that's what self-development, authenticity, and leadership is all about. So you've done a lot of great things and have had a significant impact. I truly appreciate your authenticity in saying you are not a model of perfection. I haven't met one and I sure as heck don't come close to it, which is why I have these conversations. So that especially makes me really glad to have this conversation with you, Jerry Sachs. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.